welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We're going to shift into Romans 7. In Romans 7, we start a, a new, um, kind of a new topic. It's, it's all this, you'll, you'll see how this is all flowing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's amazing that if you read the Bible in context, it all seems to like just mean something, um, right? And so, um, but you'll see there's this flow, isn't there? And he's, he's deconstructing these concepts that the Jews have of sin, of faith, of righteousness, of what it is to live um, with God and, and live a godly life. Um, and so he's deconstructing all these things. But one of the things that he's gone after again and again is the law. And he's, he's thrown away these little um, things. Bit by bit by bit, he's thrown away um, these little comments about the law. And um, in chapter 7, he really hits it home. And what you'll see is chapter 7, we shift into a conversation about the law. And a lot of people make chapter 7 about um, the sinful nature, like I mentioned before, we had this topic of like, oh, it's about Paul's struggle with sin. Um, and actually what I'd like you to um, see, hopefully you'll see with me when, when you read along and you'll agree with my perspective. But what we find in Romans 7 is it's not a struggle with the law. It's, a, uh, it's not a struggle with sin. It's a struggle with the law that Paul has. Um, and so if we start chapter 7. Yeah, you're, you're fine. So we, chapter, uh, we start chapter 7 and, and it starts... Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And so he's um, he's starting. You can see he started a new topic, a new uh, conversation, and it's revolving around the law. He's like, I'm speaking to you who understand the law that right. Do you not know we're not under this this law? Um, And of course, he just finished talking about how we're no longer slaves to sin. We're now um, under um, righteousness where we live in righteousness <laughs> excuse me um and so oh man that sneeze really threw me for six um so he says that that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives okay so the law only lasts for you while you live um for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives but if her husband dies she's released from the law of marriage accordingly she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So you get in that analogy. That works really, it works still in our culture today, our Western culture. We still have that same principle of you get married to someone, legally, you're married to that person. It's a legal thing until death do you part, right? Or you sign a bit of paper. But until death do you part, you're married. And if you then go, I'd like to go and live with someone else, that would be adultery because you're married to that person. And so the, the principle stands today. That would be the same deal. It would be an adultery. It would be an affair. Um, however, if your husband or your wife was to die, you'd be free to marry someone else. You'd be free to be with someone else. It wouldn't be adultery then. It would be a completely legitimate relationship. We wouldn't frown on that at all. Um, and so he's, he's building that framework. That would, that would be something the Jews understand. It's something we understand today as well. You know, when someone dies, you're no longer married to them. You're free to marry someone else. Um, so he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So he's, he's harking back to that conversation we just had about being dead. Um, so that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which helped us captive. So we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what's he saying? It's the same thing. You used to be married to someone. They died and now you're free to marry someone else. He's like, you used to be married to the law. And when you were married to the law, it, like, it woke all the sin stuff in you. 
Like being married to the law is what made you sinful. It's what gave you sinful passions and desires. So that pull away from God in one sense is law. It's, it's, it's the law that causes you to want to do your own thing and to be pulled away. He's like, but you're dead to the law. There's been a death here, right? And so some um, passages, Paul talks about how the law died. In other passages, he talks about how we died. So there's a death in here in which died is kind of irrelevant in one sense. It doesn't matter who's died in the relationship. The other person is free at that point. And so he's saying, look, there's been a death. You're no longer married to the law. Now you're free to be yoked and, and to be married to Jesus and to be this, this life in the spirit. And this is your marriage now. This is what you have, okay? But the, 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 the context there, if you think about it, if, if, you, uh, if you're married now to Jesus, to grace, why would you go back to the law, right? I mean, that would be stupid, right? I mean, really stupid. Apart from the gross imagery, it would be really stupid. Um, so you're, you're completely liberated. You're completely free. And there's no reason to go back to that old way of life. It's dead. You're remarried. You're, you're in this new uh, relationship, new life. Um, so then he says, he, he asks another rhetorical question, right? So he's going, well, what should we say then? Is the, uh, that the law is sin? So is the law a bad thing? Does it, is it sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So he's saying, no, the law isn't bad, but it does show me what bad stuff is, right? It shows me what sin is. Um, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin seized an opportunity through the commandment and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So there's something about sin that grabs a hold. And again, the sin, it's still a personification. It's not a thing you do. It's this, it's this thing in us, this desire, this pull. And what it does is it goes, oh, law. And it grabs a hold of that law and it pulls us even more so into that, that, that wrongdoing. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So in some level, um, Paul's saying here, sin isn't an issue until you give it some law, some, law, some rules. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He's saying the law that says, I'll bring you life, actually killed him. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin produced death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and though, uh, through the commandment might be some, uh, bec- gosh, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So he's saying, look, the law isn't bad. It is good. Like the law is good, right? And we all know that. Like, you know, the law doesn't say like kill people. It says don't kill people, right? doesn't say go sleep with your neighbor's wife. It says don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. I mean, these are good rules, you know, like fairly good rules, right? Um, you can start picking and choosing some of them and going, well, actually, eating bacon, that's not a good rule. I mean, I, I want to eat bacon, right? But, but, you know, in the whole, these are good, wholesome rules that give you a good, wholesome life. You know, it's not like they're telling you to do things that are going to mess your life up or give you a worse life, apart from the bacon bit. Um, but so, so he's saying, look, the law isn't bad. The problem is the law facilitates that bad stuff that that sinful pool it just feeds on law and gets worse and worse and worse and so you, we, we have to be careful that we don't grab a hold of the law and look at the law as just because the law is good it doesn't actually serve us good necessarily and actually 
sin grabs that which is good, that law, and becomes really bad. Um, and so uh, let's keep reading a little bit and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into this topic a little bit more. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Oh, the child is the best example of this. You put a child in a room with a red button and say, don't press that red button. I'll be back in five minutes. Hidden, you've seen the hidden camera videos on YouTube and stuff where they go, they put like a jelly baby or something in the middle of the room and they're like, right, if you don't eat this, I'll give you an entire pack of jelly babies. Um, I'll be back in a minute. And they go out and there's like one way mirrors and stuff like that. Right. And the kids are, they're like, they're like, how far can I push it so that I can't eat it? But where does it start? They're like, lick it or something, right? Or they're like, who sniffs a jelly baby? It's like a kid that's been told, don't eat it. It's like, I want to push it as far as possible. And then it's like, but that's not quite far enough. And they're licking it. And then they're like, nibble a little bit. And they put it down and they're like, oh. and then they're like, but that little nibble was quite good. So maybe a little bit more. And, and before you know it, they eat it every time. Like there's never been a kid in the world that hasn't eaten it, you know? And they come back and they've got the big bag. Oh, oh, you ate it. Oh, that's a shame. And they just eat the whole jellyboos in front of them. I don't know what they do, but like, right. But it's like, but it's like, this was such an easy choice, right? Don't eat one, get a whole bag of jelly babies. And yet somehow we're like, I'm going to eat that thing. And nothing in us wants to in one level, right? The whole time the kid is going, I know I shouldn't. And I know there's a much greater reward, but it's been a minute and a half for God's sake. How do I hold on? You know, and so they just end up eating it. Um, And so exactly like this is it. And so this is, you know, Paul's hitting here. And so then in this, right, we have to remember who is Paul? Paul is the the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews. I mean, this guy is a genius. He was groomed from the thing. He went through Beit Sefer, Beit um, uh, Talmud, Beit uh, Midrash. I mean, this guy went through every type of teaching that the, the, the Jews had. He was a genius and he knows the law better than anybody. In Philippians, it says, I... I know and have obeyed the law better than anyone. I've obeyed it perfectly, which is a bold claim, right? From someone that says you can't obey it perfectly. He just said that earlier. And, you know, so he, he's maybe speaking in hyperbole there and exaggerating a little bit, but he's saying, I know the law, trust me. Okay, so this guy is, is, who's speaking here, he's like, I'm a guy who knows the law. And what, how does he start this whole passage? He says, I speak to those who understand the law. He's like, let me explain the law to you. So this, this whole context is about the law. It's not about sinful nature, which we like to make it about. Um, so in that, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now if I no longer, uh, it, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Um, So like, what's he saying here? He's saying, look, I know what's right. And it's really hard for me not to have that as my driving force. I know what's right. So I'm going to go and try and do it. But what do I end up doing every time? Evil. He's like, I, but I know what's right. And I'm going to try and do it and I mess up. And I know what I shouldn't do. And I'm going to not do that. I'm definitely not. Oh, I've done it. How does that happen every time? Right? And what's he, what's he pointing here? He's saying, look, the issue here is not 
um, sin in and of itself, um, but it's actually this, this tendency to trying to do what's right and wrong or avoid what's wrong. And that is what inflames sin. And that's what creates sin. And that's what puts us back in this old way of doing things. It, it resurrects this old life and says, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do this. And before you know it, you've let the dead self run riot. It's the one that's in charge. It's the one that's doing stuff. And so what you're doing is you're giving life to, um, to, to, to death, right? You're, you're allowing this, this death, this sinfulness to reign. In, in uh, Romans 6, we just talked about it, didn't we? It talks about, don't let sin um, reign in your, in your body, you know, but you have a choice. It's not a thing of like sin is in your body and you don't have a choice. It's saying, don't let sin reign in your body. You don't let it use your, your instruments uh, as, as instruments of righteousness, you know? So you, you're basically walking around and you can choose, what do I want to let rule me? I can lo- choose to let sin rule me or I can choose to let righteousness rule me. What are you going to choose? And Paul here is saying, whenever you choose the law, anytime you choose the law, you are choosing to let sin reign in your mortal body. And exactly. Absolutely. It's got to be rest. You've got to rest in God. And, and that's when righteousness can reign in your mortal body. But, but as soon as we, we engage in this is what's right and this is what's wrong, that's when we step into this place of sin being fostered and, and being bred. And so what Paul's talking about here in Romans 7 is he's saying, look, this is not about sin for, uh, for most, uh, in, in the foremost sense, because sin is powerless without the law. It's completely powerless. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to just read a few scriptures about the law and just give you a bit of a context. Because the law is something we really struggle with as Christians. We really struggle to grapple our heads around. And again, we've got this whole thing, don't we? We've, how do we interpret the Old Testament, right? Because the law was a huge part of the Old Testament. You look at the, the Torah, the five books of instruction, the way, um, the teaching. Um, a good chunk of it is law. Like a good chunk of it is just the rules, and I mean, this was a key component of what it is to be Jewish. And so for Paul to be saying, look, the law is what's going to make you sinful. The law is what makes you sinful. They're going, what do you mean? This is what we've built our entire faith on. This is what God gave us. He gave us the law and says, do this and you'll be fine. And you're saying that's going to make us sinful. That's the whole issue. This is a disaster, right? I mean, this is, and this is a flipping, comp- uh, um, controversial message to be dropping on the jews you know just to be go hey jewish people right here's some news for you the law worst enemy it's good it's good perfect and holy but it can't make you good perfect and holy so i'm not saying the law is bad but the law is what causes all of this bad stuff to thrive because sin is powerless without the law so anyway, but, but we, we really struggle with this, but I want to I just glimpse through some of the passages on the law. Now, I'm going to pull them out of context. I hate pulling stuff out of context. Like, you've just seen me. I, I love teaching work right through a Bible, but, you know, right through a book of the Bible or something like that. I can't do that with the entire New Testament. I'm really sorry. And you're probably thinking, thank God he's not going to. Um, right? So, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pull out some of the verses on the law and give you some context. I, I want you on some level to trust me that I'm not pulling them out of context, that there, there is context behind these. And I'm not, I, I, you know, there's plenty of verses about the law where I'm not pulling them out of context because they're not talking about that, the thing that I'm talking about right now. So uh, there is that, but I want you to, well, follow up. You know, you, you read these afterwards. You check, am I telling the truth? Uh, is this what the Bible says about the law? Don't take my word for it. Uh, on one level, please do, I'm right. Um, but, you know, please look into this. But, but I, I just can't give you the context of, you know, 40 plus verses in one go. So I, I'm just going to just grab some of these verses because I think it's important that we understand we are 
um, Christians, what Jews believe about the law is ultimately completely irrelevant. I mean, it really is. At the end of the day, what Jews believe about the law is absolutely irrelevant. We can learn stuff from it, but we're not Jews. We are Christians. And so it's really important we, we look at the early writings. So what Jeremiah has to say about the law, that's, that's interesting. Um, and we can learn from that and we can learn about the Jewish journey and we can learn about what maybe God was saying about the law at the time to those people. But quite frankly, the way Jeremiah grappled with the law is probably not the way we're going to because several hundred years later, we have Jesus come along. And after Jesus, we have Paul and James and John and these guys explaining what our relationship to the law is. And so for me, I'm like, if I'm going to learn what my relationship is to the law and how I grapple with the law, I want to read the words of Jesus. I want to read the words of Paul. I want to read the words of John. And Jim. I want to see these guys that their job was to start the early church, to, to steward this movement of God, that as people started engaging with God and walking with God and communicating with his spirit and, and walking out this kingdom life, their job was to go, hey, we're going to teach you what that looks like. We're going to teach you the way of Jesus. We're going to teach you the way of the kingdom. What did they say about the law? Because that's how I should be seeing the law, right? I mean, that's just common sense to me, it seems, right? Um, and so it's not that any other passages in the Old Testament that talk about the law are irrelevant, but it's, uh, it's the same thing of like, well, that's great, but let me filter it through what we as Christians are supposed to, how we are supposed to walk with the law, how we're to see the law. So let me just give you a few of these verses and, and um, you might not be able to catch up. You might want to just write the references down. Even the references, you might not be able to keep up. I'm sorry. Um, you can get them all on my website, so it's maybe just easier for you to do that. I don't know. Um, but, or it, at worst, I'll leave my iPad here at the end and you can write them down. Um, all right, Acts 15.10 says the law is an unbearable yoke. Romans 3.20 says that the law reveals sin but cannot fix it. Romans 4.14 says that if the law worked, faith would be irrelevant. That's a good point, isn't it, really? Um, Romans 4.15 says the law brings wrath upon anyone that tries to follow it. Romans 5.20, the purpose of the law was to increase sin. That's not a commonly spoken message in church. The purpose of the law is to increase sin. Romans uh, 6.14, Christians are not under the law. Romans 7, 1 through 6, Christians are delivered by the, from the law through that death. You know, there's a, there's a separation in the, in the marriage. We just talked about that. Um, Romans 7, 7 through 12 talks about how the law is perfect, good, and holy, but cannot make anyone perfect, good, or holy. That's not its purpose. So it is good. It's perfect. It is holy. It doesn't tell you to go kill people. But in the same token, it can't stop you killing people. It's just the law. Um, Romans 7, 10, the law which promises life only brings death. Romans 7, 13, the law makes you sinful beyond measure. Romans 8, 2 through 3, the law is weak. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of, the, of sin is the law. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, the law is a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 9, the law is a ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, 10, the law has no glory at all in comparison to the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 11, the law is fading away. You know, I put an asterisk next to that and think, oh, fading away, that sounds like it could still kind of be here. You know, like kind of fuzzy, kind of see-through, but kind of still here, fading away, right? So, you know, think about that. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. This is scary, this one. Anywhere the law is preached, it produces a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil to Jesus. Does anyone know where the law is preached, right? I mean, most churches in the world, uh, Christian schools, Sunday school, uh, you know, I mean, 
for crying out loud, right? I mean, some, some nations want their laws to be the law. Um, 2 Corinthians three fourteen through 15. Anywhere the law is preached, it creates a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil from Jesus. It literally blinds you in your mind and heart from seeing Jesus. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, what are some of the main things we teach Christians? Oh, you better learn the Ten Commandments and you better, you know, oh my gosh. Galatians 2.16, the law justifies nobody. Galatians 2.19, Christians are dead to the law. Galatians 2.21, the law frustrates grace. Galatians 3.1, to go back to the law after embracing faith is stupid. Um, Galatians 3.10, the law curses all who practice it. Galatians 3, 11 through 12, the law has nothing to do with faith. Galatians 3, 13, the law was a curse that Christ has redeemed us from. Galatians 3, 16 and 19 talk about how the law functioned as a temporary covenant um, from Moses until John the Baptist announced Christ. Uh, Galatians 3, 21, if the law worked, God would have used it to save you. That's a good point. I mean, he wouldn't have come and died on a cross if, it was, if he had another option. So the law just isn't God's plan. Galatians 4, uh, tw- oh, Galatians 3.23, the law was our prison. Galatians 4.24, the law makes you a slave. Ephesians 2.15, Christ has abolished the law. Philippians uh, 3, 4 through 8, uh, Paul considers the, everything the law gained him as skybalon, which is the Greek word for poop. And actually, it's a Greek word for shit. Okay, it's, it's an expletive. It's for shit. It's an expletive. It's the worst words that the Greeks had for poop. And like, you know, I mean, this is the kind of, like, this is what you spray paint on the wall or something. You know what I mean? This is a bad word. And Paul says, everything I consider, the, everything the law has gained me. He's not saying every time I tried to do the law and I messed up, that I think is poop. He's saying, no, every time I used the law and it benefited me and I did it well, it's poop. It's nothing. Most of your translations in English probably say rubbish. Um, it's it's the, the most PC way they choose to translate it, but it does not mean rubbish at all. Um, Colossians 2.14, the law was nailed to the cross. Uh, 1 Timothy uh, 1.8 says the law is good, but only if it's used in the right context. So again, I'm, I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm just saying there's a, there's a context here. So the next verse, what is the context? Verse 9 and 10, it was made for the unrighteous, not the righteous. Well, who are you? We're the righteousness of Christ, right? We are righteous. The law was not made for us. It was made for those that were unrighteous. But that's what Jesus has done, right? He's turned us from unrighteous into righteous. So we have come out of a covenant where we may have needed a law to something where we do not need the law. It's not, it's not something that is required in our walk with God. Hebrews uh, 7, 18 through 19, the law is weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. That's a strong word because, again, Hebrews is a, a letter written to the Jews, isn't it? So you're talking, this is pretty, that's fighting talk. You know what I mean? Like Paul, Paul yeah, I mean, really has hammered home to the, to the, the Jewish uh, population in Rome here. He's really hammering the law. That is fighting talk from the Hebrew author. The law is weak, useless, and makes nothing perfect. You send that in a letter to, uh, to, to Jerusalem? You wonder why Hebrews is anonymous? Because you don't want people to know who sent that letter because they're coming after you. I mean, that is seriously, really aggressive language to write to a Jewish believer because that's not what we believe. We think the, the law is strong, it's helpful, and it makes us perfect. 
And you're saying it's useless, weak, and makes nothing perfect. Um, Hebrews 8, 7 through 8, God found fault with the law and created a better covenant and acted on better promises. Now that messes with our heads as well. God found fault with the law. Well, God gave the law. Did God mess up? Was there typos or what was the deal? <laughs> right? They get like autocorrected as he bashed it out or like, what's going on here? Because God doesn't make mistakes, right? Hebrews uh, 8.13, it's obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish. Now, that is another one. We maybe stick an asterisk next to you and think. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.11, it's, ready to, it's, it's, it's um, ready to vanish. And this one, it's obsolete, growing old, ready, uh, ready to vanish. Oh, sorry, what does 2 Corinthians 3.11 say? Um, fading away, sorry, yes. Um, and so, again, there's kind of a parallel there, isn't there? There's this thing of like, well, it's not quite gone, no. It's not quite gone. It's just growing old, ready to vanish. Okay? So you, you, there's a bit of leeway there where we can maybe go, oh, but there's still a little bit. Maybe just a little bit of law we get to keep. We'll touch on that in a sec. But, um, you know, uh, stop in Hebrews. Um, it's, it's only a shadow of good things to come and will never make someone perfect, is Hebrews 10.1. So there's a lot of commentary here on the law. You know, it's not like the, the New Testament authors were silent on this. This was a major topic that they talked about all the time. And when they talked about it, it didn't go well for the law. Like, it wasn't like, you know, everyone was like, yay, thumbs up, go law. Like, it was not something that they promoted in a, in a, in a way that um, made it seem good. This was a, no, the law is not your friend, people, at all. And so I really want us to, to understand that that is the, the, the breadth of message of the New Testament is law is not your friend. The law strengthens sin. It gives sin some power. And actually, without the law, sin loses its power. Um, and so let's, let's kind of, um, wrestle with that kind of context a little bit more. Can we turn the heat down? Can someone switch on to cool? Cause it is blurred. Like it's horrible. Um, if you just press the furthest left button, uh, it should turn it to cool, uh, up the top, I think, or not the top, but the, like the buttons there. Maybe. You don't want to turn it down. You want to switch it to cool. The problem is the setting. Oh, sorry here. Uh, It's on heat mode. That's fine. Just leave it at like 22, but I'm cool. Sorry. And everyone on the podcast, we just fixed the AC. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> um, so I want to just quickly touch on this one topic. Because the, the issue that a lot of people have is we, we um, try to think which would be a good one to start. Let's quickly talk about what do we mean by the law. Okay. Because um, there's a lot of people that, that have no problem with this on one level. They're like, oh, yeah, the law... Well, the law isn't our friend. Yeah, 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 that's fine. But they're like, well, he's obviously talking about all the laws that the Pharisees and the Sadducees added on top of God's law. Mm, no, no, it really isn't. Okay, well, well, then he's just talking about the, the, the smaller laws, you know, like don't eat bacon and don't eat shrimp and no tattoos. That's okay. We can get tattoos. We can eat bacon, but there's more important laws, right? And so we, we love to pick and choose our laws, don't we? And do you know what's really interesting is you ever met someone that's picked and choose laws that they actually struggle with? No, right? The laws that they, they let slide are the ones that they don't want to do. And the laws that they keep are usually ones that they don't have that big a problem with doing, right? No one really cares about losing the do not murder because most of us aren't murdering psychopaths, right? But the ones like uh, maybe uh, gluttony, oh, yeah, well, that's not as important really, you know. I and mean, Don't eat bacon. Well, yeah, I've had a bacon sandwich every Saturday morning. 
So I like to wake up, you know, fry up. Or, right? Is it, we pick and choose our laws, and let's not kid ourselves, right? I mean, we pick and choose what the big sins are and the small sins are. Um, and, and that's no different to uh, the way people approach this as well. We love to compartmentalize laws. And so um, a lot of people teach that the Jewish people had um, a kind of a tiered system for laws. Well, there was uh, the moral laws and the civil laws and the ceremonial laws. And, and that's kind of true, but it's also complete hogwash. I mean, it's, it's not true at all in one sense. And so, yes, the Jews um, compartmentalized the laws, but only in a, in a uh, mnemonic kind of like um, in a way of, of memorizing. Remember we talked about uh, uh, Zephyr last week, and I think I mentioned it just there, where or yesterday maybe, where, where the, the, the children from the age of 6 to 10 would memorize the Torah, right? I mean, how many of you have got some good memory verses, right? You've got a few memory verses in your head. If I ask you, quote a verse, you'd be like, uh, right? You, John 3.16 or maybe, you know, like a few others. Uh, but you'd run out fairly quickly probably, right, if we're honest, right? How many of you could quote the first chapter of a book in the Bible? Anyone? None? Right? I mean, of, of course not, right? Because why, why would we? Right? I mean, we've got the Bible in our pockets, on our phones, never mind an actual Bible. But these guys didn't have that. I mean, they, they, their nearest Bible was maybe someone in their um, village might have like a scroll or something of like, you know, Isaiah or a scroll of this or a scroll of that. But for the most part, they had to go to the synagogue. And in the synagogue was a basket full of the scrolls. And that was how they accessed the, 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 the word. The, the whole of the, um, the Pentateuch, or the Talmud, and especially the Torah was just in this basket. And that's how they had to get it. And even then, only certain people were allowed to just, you couldn't just go into your local synagogue and be like, oh, I'll just read Genesis. Right? You weren't allowed to do that. The rabbi had access to these things. You know what I mean? Like, and so you had to memorize it from the age of six through to 10. You would memorize the Torah, the first five books. And that's where all the law is, right? And this is why it was important to memorize because can you imagine, right? Imagine I said, look, here's 500 rules, right? Or 600 or whatever you want to do, right? Let me give you 50 rules. 50 rules. If you do these 50 rules, you'll go to heaven. You'll be good. And God will be happy with you. Your life will be perfect. Just do these 50 rules, right? And then I just told you. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, right? You'd be like writing them down. You'd be making, I want to make sure I mem- remember these, right? But even if you have them written down, like you've got to remember these in everything you do throughout your day-to-day life, right? So when you're, uh, topping up your car with petrol and something happens and you're like, oh gosh, right, wait, does that fit with all the, you know, right? you've got to be thinking, am I going to break any of these rules by the way I talk to that person or by the way I uh, act while I'm doing this, right? I mean, you're constantly thinking this. And so if I said to you, right, all the rules in the Bible, these, this is your lifeblood. If you don't do these, you're going, you're done, you're dead. You're far from God. If you do these, you'll be fine. You'll be okay. You'll be good. Like you better bet they wanted to memorize these things, right? And so this is actually one of the techniques they use to memorize the, the Torah and especially um, the, the, the priestly texts of Leviticus, of, of Numbers, of Deuteronomy, the ones that had a lot of the, the, the rules and the regulations and the law. Um, they did break it up into sections. And so they'd be like, oh, that section I can remember by doing it this way. And so they, they would break up. Oh, I'll remember that bit and we'll break up that bit because those are about other people and these are about how we interact with god and this is about this and so they'd be like oh yeah these are the more the priestly laws because that's about how we come to god and so it's our sacrifices it's about how we cleanse ourselves so yeah they broke them up but no they didn't go and these are more important than that they didn't tear it okay the only level of tearing that could ever be in the jewish law was that they had all these different laws and then they had the ten commandments Okay, so the Ten Commandments were like, I mean, because if you're going to pick and choose good and bad ones, I mean, the ones God wrote with his own hand, 
in some stone. Those are going to win. Do you know what I mean? I don't care how nice your calligraphy is. The one that God was like, all right, chisel this out. Right, there you go, guys. I mean, that holds some weight. No pun intended. Um, you know, so yes and, and no in that sense. So yes, they, they, they did have some sort of tier system, but not really. And the only tier system there was for the Bible, for, for the, the, the Ten Commandments. However, okay, so then what people do is go, well, every time this law is mentioned in the Old Testament, that's just talking about all these laws, the ceremonial laws and this. That's not needed, but we do need the Ten Commandments, right? Well, let me just refresh you. Remember um, 2 Corinthians 3, we talked about 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 7, the law is a ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, 9, it's a ministry of uh, death. 2 Corinthians 3, 10, it has no glory at all in comparison to the uh, new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 11, which we'll talk about in a second, it's fading away. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15, anywhere this law is preached, it creates a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil from Jesus. How does it begin? Right before that, the, those passages, the law which is engraved in stone. Well, which one was engraved in stone? Only the Ten Commandments were engraved in stone. So you can tear it and you can make it about this and this. And, but the law he's talking about here is the best laws. It's the most important laws. He's not talking about the, these smaller laws. He's talking about the big laws. And so if he's talking about the big laws, you bet he's talking about the other laws. It's, this is an all-encompassing law when he talks about the law. He's not saying... Ah, you these other laws that we made up. He's saying, no, every law in this system is a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. It's fading away. It's got no value at all compared to the new covenant. It creates a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil from Jesus. It's this law that reveals sin but cannot fix it. It's this law that was brought in to increase sin. It's this law that makes us sinful beyond measure. You know, like Romans 3.20, Romans uh, 5.20, Romans 7.13. You know, all, these, all these scriptures over and over and over again. The law is not your friend. It's this law that is the strength of sin, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, yeah? So we can, we can compartmentalize sin if you, uh, the law if you want, and you can get big sin, little sin, all that. Or big, big laws, little laws. You can do that if you want, but just remember that it's all clumped together in Paul's addressing here of sin because he's saying the law which is engraved in stone is the law I'm talking about here. So, I just wanted to tackle that because I didn't want to give you any leeway of going, okay, well, I'll believe what Phil's saying and I'll put all these laws to the side, but I'll keep this, this, and this. You can't, there's no, there's no leeway to keep any of it in this space. So um, from that, we then move on. I want to talk about this, um, this concept of fading away, um, of growing old, ready to vanish, um, all that kind of context. Because it's only twice in the whole of the New Testament, it talks about this potential for the law to be still around. But what I do want to make very, very clear is that, again, context is everything. Knowing the context in which your Bible is written, who it's written to, is like bread and butter for how you're going to interpret things. And I know that it seems unfair, you know, because it seems unfair because we don't know much about these things. You know, we don't know the culture that it was written to. We don't understand Jewish culture. We don't understand, um, you know, the, the way that um, the Roman culture infected Jerusalem and the Jewish culture. You know, we don't understand this stuff unless we actually study it. And that seems really unfair. If you're not academic enough, you can't understand the Bible. And I think God is gracious enough. You know, obviously, he speaks to us through the Bible all the time. But I think we should be humble enough at the same time to go, I'm not going to build a whole theology on something that I personally haven't looked into and researched and studied. And so we, we, there is an element of... Make sure you know the context of some of the Bible verses before you run away and build a whole theology on it, especially if it's two out of hundreds of verses. 
So if you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses that say, the law's done away with, you're no longer under the law, it's not for Christians, it's to be done with. And then you've got two Bible verses, and both of them are pretty hazy anyway, right? The law is, red, uh, is fading away, and the law is ready to vanish. I mean, neither of it sounds good for the law anyway, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not as if it's a strong, compelling argument that the law's here for, uh, forever. Um, but those, those are verses that seem to give us a bit of leeway to have the law around. And so... What I want to, uh, us to understand is a bit of the context in which our Bible was written, because actually this might pop open quite a lot for you, and this might end up being something we end up going into a bit deeper in Q&A, but I do want to just touch on it at least, um, is that the Bible, the New Testament was written before a very significant uh, event, with the exception, uh, with the possible exception of one book. The only book um, that is possibly written after um, the 70 AD time period is Revelation. There's a bit of debate on when that was written. Um, some scholars uh, believe it was written around mid-60s. Other scholars believed it was written around 90 AD. Um, and actually, which scholars you believe can have a massive uh, ramification on how you read Revelation as well, actually. Um, but what we do know is that every other book, um, at least at face value, was written before 70 AD. Okay? Um, again, there's some elements of that, certainly... The, the Timothy letters could be challenged to be written much later, possibly to 380, which is a major uh, mind screw up. Um, but anyway, apart from that, you know, put that to the side right now. We can talk about that later, but that might really screw with your men. Um, but these letters, these, these, um, these uh, gospels, all these different elements were written before 70 AD. And so there's a significant thing that happens in 70 AD. Okay, a really significant thing. Um, if I was to write to you um, a letter um, describing something that was about to happen in your life, maybe a prophetic word, and I said, look, in two to three years, this is going to happen, and you need to really make sure that you're prepared for this, that you do this and this and this, and if you don't do that, you're going to be in trouble because this is a significant thing that's going to happen to you in two or three years. If someone then picked up that letter 10 years from now and read it, and they read it and thought it was about them and something they had to prepare for, can you see how that would be a problem? But that's actually how we approach most scripture, right? Because we think scripture is written to us and for us, which it isn't. Um, not primarily, uh, of course. We talked about it yesterday. Of course, we benefit from it and God's given it. And, and he wrote it with the express purpose of this will help people for generations. And, and you know, it will be my, my, one of my ways in which I speak to people forever. But it was written to people, right? When, when Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I forgot my cloak and some of my books. Can you bring them back with you? I mean, has anyone done that? Has anyone read that passage and gone, oh, better go get Paul his letters and his, his books and his, his jacket? Of course not, right? He's like writing a letter to his mate Timothy saying, can you bring my jacket when you come? Right? I mean, but, but you know, so we understand this on some level that, of course, these are letters that are written to people. Um, but then on another level, we just throw all that out and then we just go, right, this is obviously written to me about my time period, about where I live and go, that's a dangerous thing to do when we don't understand that all of these, these passages were written before a very significant thing that probably is the most significant thing that has happened in Judaism, full stop. Um, especially if you discredit Jesus, what like the Jews do. The most significant thing that has ever happened in Judaism happened in 70 AD, between 67 and 70 AD. Who, who knows what that is? Destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so I'm going to talk you through this because, uh, and you know what, this is not... This is not bedtime story stuff. This is not fun. Um, it's not going to give you really warm and fuzzies. But it's really important you understand this because this is, like I said, probably the most important thing that has ever happened to the Jews, full stop, throughout history. 
Um, and it's actually a very significant thing for Christians to understand as well, because it has a real strong ramification on our lives and the way we interpret the scriptures. Because if we don't understand 7 AD, we will not understand a good chunk of our Bible. We just won't. Um, because this is the context in which it's written. And so, um, looking at um, Jesus' life, he gave some significant prophetic words, didn't he? He was extremely prophetic in some of the things he, he said and he warned about or he, he said about himself. You know, I'm going to die. I'm going to raise up in three days. I mean, some really, I mean, he knew what was going on. But actually, he, he um, gives us a very significant prophetic words in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, doesn't he? And most... Uh, not most, a lot of Christianity um, grabs a hold of that prophetic word and, and views it as a, a commentary on the end of days, the, the end times, the end of the world, however you want to kind of word that sort of uh, stuff. Um, when actually that's not what it's about. Um, it can be if you really want it to, you can have a double meaning, but you won't find a single scholar that believes that that is what Jesus was talking about in Luke 21 or Matthew 24. Um, in this passage, we see it uh, start up, um, and Jesus is just given this condemning message to the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs, you're hypocrites, you're, he just really hits them hard. And after that, he says, look, this, this temple system, this whole thing, it's coming to an end. The whole temple is going to be torn down, and I'll rebuild it myself. And everyone goes, oh, my gosh. And he's like, look at the temple. How amazing is it? And because they were bragging about their temple, right? And it's amazing. In fact, do you know that they think in today's money, the temple was worth a square, uh, a cubic uh, square foot of the temple. Each cubic square foot was worth roughly $60 billion in our money today. That's, that's a significant expenditure on that building. That wasn't a huge building, to be fair, but it was still... Flipping massive. We're talking trillions of dollars. So we're talking like, you know, I mean, America spending almost, you know, its entire bankroll for a year just going, right, let's build one building that's not even that big. Smaller than the White House. You know, I mean, it's a small building in the grand scheme of things. It was lavish. It was wonderful. And it was this, the gem of Jerusalem, the gem of Israel. It was their pinnacle thing because they'd rebuilt it, hadn't they, after they came back from the exile. And it was their grand achievement and it was, just showed how glorious God was. And so they're boasting this. And Jesus says, look at that temple. He says, you look at all and you think it's amazing. You boast about it. He's like, I'm going to tear the whole thing down and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And in that place, the disciples, they, they pull Jesus aside and they say, Jesus, You've condemned these Pharisees and you've, you've spoken down about their regime and how they operate. And you're saying their time is coming to an end. You've just said that the temple is going to be destroyed. And they go, tell us what will be the sign of the end of the age and of the coming of your kingdom. What are they talking about, do you think? I don't think they're talking about the end of the world. I think they're saying, look, what do you mean this whole system's going to end? This system of, um, of the Pharisees, of the temple, of sacrifice, um, and, and, and that there's a new thing that you're going to build in three days and this coming off of the kingdom. So he's, they're, they're saying, look, what's going to be the sign and what, what's going to come? You know, they're wanting to know what's going to bring this all stuff about. So it's really important that we understand this isn't explicitly about the end of the world. Again, if you want it to be a double meaning prophecy, it can be. It would be the first. There's never been a double fulfilled prophecy. Um, we like to look through the Old Testament and say they're double fulfilled, but they just typically weren't fulfilled in the Old Testament. They're fulfilled in Jesus and we just miss read what God was doing. Um, but anyway, this would be the first double fulfilled prophecy. You can have it if you want, though. So I'm not saying you can't have that end of the world. I'm just saying it 
it would be the first time God's done something twice for the sake of it. Um, so when we actually start looking at his prophecy, though, it has significant meaning, okay? Because when we look at Jesus' prophecy, it's very detailed. I mean, it's really, really detailed. But some of it, you're like, this is really kind of like um, a child's prophecy. You know, he says things like, well, there'll be earthquakes. And you're like, yeah, okay, great. I mean, there's earthquakes all the time, right? I mean, that's not particularly special. Or, well, there'll be rumors of wars and wars. And you're like, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, great. What's new? Right, so some of the stuff you're like, wait, what exactly is going on here? And in that context, we have to start understanding again the context in which Jesus is giving this prophecy. So um, when we look at this time period, Jesus dies around 30 AD or so. Um, what was his warning? He says, within one generation, this will come. And in fact, he tells them, you'll all see this. None of you will die before this happens, right? So this is a, this is a key point, right? Because I don't think any of it, well, we know all the disciples died. We have records of how they died and where they died and when they died, right? So it's very interesting. Jesus says, you all be alive to see this. Um, so that, if nothing else, should have made us think, right? Um, so he says that. So, and then he says it will be within one generation. Well, a generation to a Jew is 40 years. That's how they measure a generation is 40 years. Um, and so we know within 40 years, this is going to come apart, right? So what's 30 plus 40? Any mathematicians in here? Right, okay. So, oh, that's 70 AD. Oh, interesting. I wonder if there's anything happening around then. Anyway, um, in this context, so from 30 AD to 70 AD, a lot of stuff starts going down, okay? So one of the things that's really interesting is that 30 AD is, is, um, is, is coming up to the end of a very significant period in Roman culture. Did you guys study Romans in, the, in high school? I know. Why do we study certain things, right? I mean, that's a really important historic thing to study, not, I don't know, something else. I mean, why do we really need to know about the Romans? I don't know. But I guarantee you didn't learn enough that was actually helpful for this particular topic anyway. So, but one of the things you learned about the Romans, I'm sure, was about Pax Romana. Did, did, did any of you learn about Pax Romana? Did any of you remember what you learned about the Romans? The aqueducts. There you go. See, you remember bits and pieces. So one of the things anyway that Rome was famous for, um, Rome became famous for something called Pax Romana. And Pax Romana means Roman peace. Um, and what's interesting is from the dawn of uh, civilization, not creation necessarily, but from civilization, ever since we've been recording things, and we've been recording things for thousands of years, you know, there's right from cave paintings upwards, you know, I mean, we've always been writing and we've been telling stories and we've been documenting what's happening and this nation went against this nation and this king did this and there was this God and we tell stories and we record things. So it's not that we're in, uh, left in the lurch not knowing what happened in that civilization 3,000 years ago. We know. People recorded it. Um, and so one of the things we can document throughout history is that war has been a flipping constant. There's, in fact, never been a time since we started documenting things that we haven't had war. There's always been war. In fact, before we even had multiple nations, we had civil war. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like we fought with ourselves. You know I mean? We have always had war. And yet there was a very significant period in history called Pax Romana. And this period, um, scholars debate as to how long it was because I guess it depends on your definition of peace. Right. Um, so certain things, people could be like, ah, that probably broke peace. And other people be like, ah, it's still peaceful. Um, so Roman peace lasted somewhere between about 45 and 120 years, depending on your definition of peace. But what's interesting is scholars fairly unanimously agree that Roman peace, this Pax Romana, ended roughly 30, 35, 36, that kind of window A.D., Okay, so after Jesus' death, Roman peace ends. So what's interesting is Jesus gives a prophecy saying 
there will be wars and rumors of wars to a people, to a generation that have never been in conflict and never even had rumor of conflict. Fascinating, right? Because actually, it's the only time that that prophecy makes sense in the history of the universe. Because ever before then, there's always been wars and rumors of wars. After that, there was always rumors of wars and wars. But during that prophecy, there was no wars and there was no rumors of wars. It was in Roman peace. And so the Jewish people just were like, wait, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars? What does that even mean? Like, what, what do you mean by that? And so actually, after Jesus' death, we're talking somewhere in the region of sort of five, six years maybe, um, there starts to be rumors of wars. And actually wars start breaking out throughout the Roman Empire. And nation will turn against nation. And actually the Jewish people themselves would become persecuted and hated. Well, that really happened, right? So Jesus prophesies about that. That really happened. Do you know that the Jews were systematically wiped out throughout the Roman Empire? In fact, some cities, they, they conspired against the Jews. And in one night they would get up and they would murder every single man, woman, and child that was a Jew in that city in one night. So some nights up to 10, 15,000 men, women, and children were killed in one night because they just turned on the Jews. They hated the Jews. And the Jews brought this on themselves in, in many ways. They, they, they rebelled against the Roman Empire. And this was the warning of Jesus. If you don't stop this, this rebellion, this violent worry, this, this, this um, bucking, unless you choose the way of peace, the way I'm promoting this kingdom, this is going to be the end. And boy, did they reap their end. You know? So this is not about even God judging them or anything. It's about them reaping that what they sow um but the jews really came against what they they um they had there and, and jesus words really came about the the earthquakes and um again really fascinating we think like we're the only people that have ever documented earthquakes or something i don't really know what the deal is with that obviously throughout history people wrote about the earthquakes and when we can see different earthquakes happening you know something like pompeii is a really fascinating example you know that's around this time um and in the right kind of region as well kind of mediterranean kind of region but there was unprecedented amount of earthquakes recorded in this time period the the um the the annuals in history are just littered with earthquake after earthquake after earthquake that devastated entire cities and regions constantly famines you know that famine was such a rare thing in the roman empire because it was such a great infrastructure and the romans they they looked after them. you could say they were pretty horrible people and they went in and killed everyone that disagreed with them and then had peace right i mean this was peace right so even peace was quite interesting a definition but you know what? Everyone that, re- that remains that chose to be part of the empire, they were looked after. Rome gave uh, very much of itself to its, its, its regions and its provinces. And so there wasn't a, a worry of famine because if there was a region that was struggling, Rome would step in and it would pull resources from different regions. And, and so famine was quite a, a hard concept for these people at this time because they were in the empire. It wasn't a worry because you don't have famine in the empire. And yet, what do we see in, in Paul's writings he talks about frequently is the famine that's going on in Jerusalem, the epicenter of this huge famine. And the famine actually spread throughout almost the entire Roman Empire and really devastated the, the Roman Empire. It's actually one of the big things that weakened the Roman Empire at this time period and actually probably was a, a factor in uh, Pax Romana really just falling apart and crumbling, um, was that there was this huge weakening famine and the epicenter of this famine, Jerusalem. People were starving to death. And Paul's going around. He does his missionary tour. And he writes to them. He says, I'm coming to you. You remember, take up some offerings. He's like, I'm coming for money so I can go back to Jerusalem and get them food. He's, 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 you know, he's, he's saying, we're raising money. We're raising food so we can go back to Jerusalem and look after our brothers and sisters. So again, famine is happening in this time period. 
But then there's like really, really interesting elements. So we, this is all going on. And this is happening over decades. But then we get to about 67, 68 AD. And the Caesar goes to a man called General Titus and says, I want you to take one of our top uh, legions and go and destroy Jerusalem. I want you to go and destroy them. I want you to kill every single Jew. I hate the Jews. I want you to kill them all. And so this hatred for Jews is still really strong in the Roman Empire, even decades later. And he says, I want you to kill all these Jews. So General Titus gets up. He gathers his troops. He goes to Jerusalem. They surround Jerusalem. Now, what was on a Roman shield? You guys got to learn this from school, right? What was on the shields? Anyone? Guys, man, I, I need to contact your teachers. Right. What was on a Roman shield? The Roman shield had an eagle or a vulture on it. Right? So it says giant eagle or vulture. It's, it's the same animal at that time period. They, they associate them the same. And actually, when Jesus says, you'll know that the time has come when Jerusalem is surrounded by vultures. Or that word in the Greek can be translated as eagles. Huh. Interesting. In that time, you better hope that you're ready to run. You better hope you're not on the roof because you won't even have time to escape. What's interesting is uh, this time really kicks off. So they surround Jerusalem. They blockade Jerusalem. Jerusalem has no choices here. They've got nothing they can do. They're they're stuck. They have no options. Um, So the Jews are trapped in Jerusalem. They they blockade the whole thing so the Romans can't get in. Um, Anyone that was outside it, it was farming or whatever, they're all crucified immediately. Um, what's interesting of this time period is actually the, Jew, the, the Romans had only 500 crosses um, that, that they made. And rather than make more crosses, they actually were killing so many people every day that they had to be killing people on the cross to get them down and get new people up. They couldn't even let people die from crucifixion because they just didn't have the time. So they're killing thousands of people every day on crosses. Um, and this is people trying to escape Jerusalem. This is people that were caught outside Jerusalem. Or this is people returning home to Jerusalem and going, oh, there's Romans here. Oh, I'm getting crucified. I mean, this is pretty intense time. Um, so it's really kicking off, really intense stuff. But they're safe in Jerusalem. And in fact, they probably had enough for five, six years in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is an incredibly fortified city, very strong, very hard to attack. Even a Roman uh, army would really struggle to get in there. And they've got great stockades. They've got the great um, capacity to, to um, maintain their, their livestock and their, their, their crops and different things like that. Um, the problem, of course, is that the, they still are looking for the Messiah, aren't they? the Jews. And what's interesting is we, we read the, the writings of Josephus and some of the other Jewish historians, and we see Messiah after Messiah after Messiah. In fact, between uh, this time and Jesus, we have about 40 strong candidates for Messiah. So these are people that are doing miracles, that are fulfilling some of the, 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 the requirements for the Messiah. So like, like Jesus fulfilled certain requirements, burn of a virgin or this or that. Some of these people were fulfilling certain requirements. Uh, so these are strong candidates for Messiah. One of them rises up in this time, about 68 AD, 69 AD, a um, guy called John Levi. And uh, John Levi has a compelling message. He's a very charismatic guy. And he says, look, the, we are going to be delivered from these Romans. We don't need to worry. But the problem is we've got our faith in ourselves, not in God. And I'm like, that's a pretty good message, right? Pretty solid. Um, compelling message. I'm sure people would have lapsed that up. And he said, what we need to do is we need to gather all of our food. Everything we've got, all our foods, all our cattle, everything, we need to burn it. Just completely get rid of our safety net and offer it up as a sacrifice to God to thank him for saving us. We're not going to rely on ourselves and on this stuff. So they gather every bit of food in Jerusalem, all the cattle, all the, um, the crops, everything. They burn it all. And that didn't go well, as you can imagine. 
uh, because he was a false messiah, right? Now, what's interesting about John Levi is he was then very much brandished as a false messiah. They got pretty upset with him. He actually, um, he actually uh, took up residence in the temple. He sat down on the temple. Do you know what his slang name is? You can see this recorded in Josephus and some other uh, historical ar- artifacts. But the Jews hated him so much. Do you know what they called him? The abomination of desolation. Well, where do you find that in your Bible? In Jesus' prophecy and in Daniel. So this guy's been prophesied about 400 years before. And Jesus says, you'll know the time has come when the abomination of desolation sits in the temple. Huh. Interesting. Right? So we've got all this stuff going on. And then you've got the, um, this is all going on. Now, the reason this is taking so long and that Rome haven't broken in here yet and really made a difference is because they had stockpiled all their goods. So this is now finished. They've, they've burned all their stockpiled goods and now they're struggling. Okay, they're really struggling. People are really trying to escape now, so the crucifixion is going up. Now you're crucifying tens of thousands every day. I mean, just going out of control. Meanwhile, however, the Caesars died, and General Titus doesn't want to do anything if the new Caesars change his mind. Okay, so he better go report back to Caesar. So he sends letters back to Caesar. Are you still want me to kill Jerusalem, or are you different? Do you like Jews or something? And the Caesar goes, No, no, I hate Jews. Kill them all. Okay, good. So we can continue the siege. Um, so they continue the siege, and they're continuing on. Um, meanwhile, in the, in the city, um, people are eating their children and babies, obviously, because that's the next best food we've got. We've not, no other food, right? And so woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babes because that's not going to go well. Um, and this is constant. It's getting worse and worse. It's a horrible time period. And, and, you know, so by the end of this time, the Jews finally get in, the, the Romans finally get in. They kill everyone. They destroy everything. What's interesting is General Titus, I mean, it's like the guy was reading um, Jesus' prophecy and making sure he was doing everything. You know, he's making sure all this stuff could happen. When General Titus goes in, he destroys the temple because it was the founding jewel of, of Jerusalem. He really wanted to rub insults to injury. But one of the things he's recorded as saying, and this is really interesting, again, you can read this in Josephus. He says, I want you to rip every stone apart and I want you to till the soil so that not one stone is on another. Again, in Jesus' prophecy. That's mental. I mean, this is a Roman general who's got no familiarity with uh, the Jewish uh, prophecies or Jesus. Or, I mean, but he's, he's literally fulfilling what they're doing. In fact, Josephus, who's the jo- Jewish uh, prophet here, um, what's really a Jewish historian, sorry, what's interesting about him is he's a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. But what he says is this. He says, it is impossible to say anything other than that the words of Jesus were fulfilled completely. And so he acknowledges Jesus' prophecy is about this event because it happens perfectly. And in fact, he says, he goes on to say, and one of the most startling facts is that in the destruction of Jerusalem and the killing of millions of Jews, not one Christian died because they heeded the prophecy of their Lord. So not only that, he then goes, because Christians listened to the prophecy of the Lord, they didn't die. And actually, there was about 3 million Jews in the beginning uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, At the end, there was about 90,000 survived. We, we're talking almost the Jewish population. They've been killed in cities around, you know, and throughout the world. They, they started wiping out the Jews. Um, we're talking almost the extinction of the Jews. You know, so we talk about the Holocaust and things like that being really bad. And, and it was. I don't want to belittle it. But actually, this was massive. I mean, this was so much bigger. I mean, this was, we're talking, they literally almost ex- made the Jews extinct. Um, why am I telling you all this? Because this is Jesus' prophecy saying the law, the sacrificial system, the temple, all this stuff is coming to an end. So when people are writing, so this comes to an end in 70 AD, right? 
So the new covenant starts in 30 AD when Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, the spirit is poured out. Okay. And then the old covenant ends in 70 AD. What do we have? We've got a 40 year period where both are kind of existing, right? So both are going on and you have a lot of people that are confused, especially Jews, right? Because they've come out of a system of we do this and we do this and this is the way we do it. And now you're telling me we don't have to, but it's still happening. And I don't really know. Do I do them both or what do I do? So when we look at something like Hebrews, Hebrews is a letter written to the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, warning them not to go back to the Jewish ways, saying, don't go back to eating the right meats and not doing the right things and sacrificing and all that. He said, don't do that because it's growing old, ready to vanish, fading away. We're, we're done here. And actually, one of the main passages in the Bible, in fact, the only passage in the Bible that we talk about that talks about losing your salvation, it's not about losing your salvation. It's in Hebrews. And it's saying, look, don't go back to the Jewish uh, system, to the old covenant, because it's about to be done away with and you'll, you'll have lost everything. If you forsake Christianity and go back to the old thing, the old thing's about to end and then you'll have nothing. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's saying, don't choose a religion that's ending. And so the warning here is, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. And so we have to understand, because when we read our Bible, we're looking forward, right? We look at our own lives and we look forward. We very rarely look back. And so you've got all the New Testament written here. Something happens here and we're over here. And we have to understand, well, all of this, we should filter through this event. And I'm not to, not to say that it's still not relevant. I mean, tell you what, you know, we, we go, well, you know, that warnings that jesus gave about destruction and all that different stuff well that's not relevant to us anymore well well no it is relevant uh, you know what the jews got what was coming to them we might get the same thing that's coming to us if we continue on our path of violence if we continue on our path of rebellion right i mean if we're still walking the same way that the jews walked if we try and overthrow uh um governments if we try and respond with vi- to violence with violence if we do the same things we might end up weeping with uh, and gnashing of teeth right because that was a warning. We think the national teeth was nothing to do with hell. It was to do with 70 AD. Um, anyway, it's really important we get this. And that's, I, I don't want to belabor it. I, f- I feel like you guys have roughly got this point, right? So the fading away, ready to vanish, that was what it was about. Um, but we still got some other issues with this. We're not under the law, right? We've got some other issues going on. Primarily, well, God gave us the law, right? So when he says he found fault with it and enacted a better covenant and acted on better promises, well, what do we do with the fact that God gave us the law, right? I mean, that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, it's good. He gave us it and he, he wants that. And so why did he give us it if it wasn't good? And why does he give us a law that its, it's purpose is to increase? Excuse me, the Romans 5.20, the purpose of the law is to increase sin. Romans uh, 7.13, um, you know, it, the law makes you sinful beyond measure. First Corinthians 15.56, the strength of sin is the law. Well, why did God give us the law? I mean, it seems like a real douchey move right right i mean that's pretty mean well actually if we start looking at the the scenario in which the law is given it's quite interesting isn't it because what we see is moses interacting with god and communion with god he goes up the mountain he talks to god he comes down and he has a really interesting uh um conversation with the jewish people and he goes he gives them this amazing prophetic words that is the prophetic words that we now get from peter peter repeats that prophetic word to us and so he, in Exodus, he goes to the Jewish people and he says, I've spoken with God and God is wanting to be your God and you will be his people. You will be a royal priesthood. And he says this to all the people, right? You will be a royal priesthood. You will be his people. He will be your God and you'll, you'll be with him. You'll speak with him. You'll commune with him. 
What do they say? They say, Moses, that's nice. <laughs> but we saw you up on the mountain and there was fire and smoke and black clouds and there was thunder and lightning and the earth was shaking. That seems scary. So actually, could you go back up the mountain and you tell God to tell you what to do and you tell us and we'll do it. That was their response to an invitation of relationship. God says, I want relationship with you. And they said, actually, can you just tell us what to do? Because we're quite scared of relationship. So what does Moses do? He goes back up. What does he come down with? Rules. <laughs> he came down with what they wanted. But it's important that we understand that that the, the law and commandments and rules, they weren't God's idea. That was God's response to what we asked of him. And so, again, we see this God who takes us on a journey. Is God a God of rules and regulations and laws and commandments? No. Does God give rules and laws and commandments when we want it? If that's what we need right now in the journey. So, again, we have to look at this meta-narrative of Scripture of God going on a journey with us. And going, I don't want you to be here, but that's all you've got right now. So he gives us loving rules and commandments and and commandments that are so much more grace-filled and merciful than the rules of the day. And still, they seem quite archaic and barbaric to us, but at least it's moving them in the right direction. But it gets to the point where it comes to where we are under no law. It gets to the point where Jesus sets us free from that and goes, actually, hey, we're back to here. And this is what Peter's talking about when he says, look, he repeats that word that God gave them in his exodus. And he says, you are now his royal priesthood. You are his people. He is your God, right? And so he repeats it again. He's saying, look, this is your invitation again. We're back to the beginning. Are you going to take it this time, right? And that's your challenge today is, do you want relationship or do you want some rules? And the truth is, a lot of the time, what's our answer? Actually, I kind of want just to tell me what to do. Right? I mean, I do that all the time. I'm like, okay, God, just tell me what to do. It's easier following rules than actually relationship, right? Relationships work. It's hard work. But actually, it didn't start. The law didn't really originate on Mount Sinai, which is quite interesting. The law didn't really originate in Moses. The written law, the commandments originated there, but there's something of the law that originated long before then. Has anyone got any ideas of where that was? Do we see rules before then? Do we see something that originates before the Ten Commandments? Think as early as you can get. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm just asking, where do you think this is first origination? Origination. Exactly. We've got some rules. Hey, guys, don't eat that. Eat this, don't eat that. Huh. And how does it go? Right? We're back to the kids with the jelly bean. Don't touch it. (laughs) It looks so good, though. Right? We just can't help it. Right? The longer we sit there, the more tempting it gets. Right? I just can't help. You know, the big red button. Do not press. And you're like, but I want to press the big red button. This big arrow, like, you know, written right across it. Do not press this under any circumstances, you know. Another arrow pointing right at it. If you press this button, bad things will happen. And you're like, oh, God, what does the button do? I need to know, right? You know, um, and it's actually in the garden that we see two options. And in fact, 
there's, a, there's an origination of law as soon as we bite that fruit. Because what was the fruit of this, this bad fruit? It was, the, it was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't the fruit of good and evil. It wasn't that we were good and then we ate it and became good and evil. But it's that we ate that fruit and we suddenly learned what was good and evil. Do you know what's really interesting to me is, is God creates the world. He creates the universe. He creates the, the planet, the garden, and he puts some people in it. And apparently they don't know what's good and bad. They just don't know what's good and bad. And God says, this is very good. And God seems to think this is a good plan as well, which is fascinating. Right? Can you imagine you have kids and you go, right, I'm never going to tell them what's bad. And I'm never going to tell them what's good. We'll just see what happens. Right? I mean, you're like, oh, dear God, this is going to be bad. Like the whole building start burned down within three minutes, right? Heads are rolling around. There's blood everywhere. I mean, this is not going to go well. Um, I, I don't know, but this is God's plan, right? He's like, well, you know, I'll be in a relationship with them. So it's, like, it's not like I'm just letting the toddler run around, but I'm like, relationship. They're going, oh, can I do this? And you're like, that's not a good idea. Maybe we should do this. You know? So there's relationship in it. But it still seems really scary to me, right? So God's like, all right, I'm never going to tell him what's right and wrong. We'll just rely on relationship. That's how it began. And what was the one thing in the whole cosmos, the only thing in the whole cosmos that God says, I really hope this one thing doesn't happen. Just one thing doesn't happen. I hope they never, ever, ever know what's right and wrong. That is the one thing that would ruin everything. I'm like, that's the one thing that makes everything okay. Why? Because I'm bent towards that law. I want that law. But the problem is, what does that law do? It inflames sin. And that's why God doesn't want us to know what's right and wrong. Because when we know what's right and wrong, we don't need relationship. God says, I hope they never eat of that fruit. I hope they eat of another fruit. And this is where it comes down to, you know, like, I think there's very compelling arguments for there not being a garden, not being an Adam and Eve, not being a tree or whatever. You know, so I, I, never, I never have a big problem with people that say, I don't believe in that. I believe in evolution or any of that. Because the truth is, this has significant meaning if we take it apart from just eating fruit. It's not about fruit, for goodness sake, people. You know, it's not about the six days. It's not about the fruit. It's, it, there's something deeper in here. And so I never have a problem with people that take away the, the actual fruit. You know, a guy ate a certain fruit and that's what caused the whole world. No, no, it's about someone choosing the knowledge of good and evil over choosing life, choosing relationship, choosing walking with God. Because actually that has significant bearing on me right now. Because I have that choice every second of every day. My choice is, am I going to choose in this moment to evaluate what's right and wrong and live based on that? And try and do what's right and try and avoid what's wrong? Or am I going to go, God, that's not my job. My job is not to sit and evaluate right and wrong here. My job is to go, God, what are we doing right now? What are you saying right now? Where are you leading me right now? Because if we do that, are we ever going to do wrong? Right? Is God steering us wrong? Is God intentionally screwing with us? Of course not, right? But we really struggle with this concept. Because we like the right and wrong. We've, we've not really got a paradigm for another way to live. That's how we've lived our whole lives. We, we love it. We absolutely love it. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.